no way of assessing whether I'd have to swim and would I swim? Do I, you know, it's just too much risk to swim across a river like that in, in Northern Australia. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Nick Cullen. G'day and welcome back to the show. This is another chance to dive into the helicopter industry and draw on some of the experiences of others that are out there doing interesting things. Mike Atkinson is today's guest on the podcast. He is definitely someone who fits the bill as someone who's doing interesting things. Mike is an ex co pilot for the Australian Army who then moved into fixed-wing instruction, flying jets, and then 737s with the Australian Air Force. He has some pretty crazy adventures over the years, with the recent one being a solo survival expedition in remote northern Australia. We talk flying, risk management, survival, drones, and comparisons between the rotary and fixed-wing careers. Let's jump straight into it. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show, and... I guess, mate, you reached out and told me that you were a chiropilot, so that was a tick in the box, and then you said uh, you'd done this filming thing, and you shot me this film of the survival filming in uh, Northern Australia, and, mate, I was absolutely captivated, so that's uh, where we're going to look at jumping off from. But, mate, thanks very much for having the, the time to have a chat to us. Thanks for having me, Mick, and uh, to be honest, just a bit of a shameless plug, really, uh, but, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. No, absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll sell this film to as many people as we can at the end of it, so it's no hassles at all. Before we get into it, though, Crocodiles or sharks, mate? What would you prefer to take your, your chances with? I, I'm assuming you, uh, I'm in the water. I'd say uh, a shark because they're easier to, to sort of have their mind changed by a sharp knife or something than a croc, I'd say. All right. We'll circle back to that and uh, people wonder why we're, uh, we're talking about that. But uh, this film's got plenty of crocs in it. So it's called, uh, and again, so your first film. And uh, <laughs> we'll talk about. I found that early one you did of uh, crossing through Iceland. So we'll talk about that too. But it's definitely a step up in quality uh, when you've uh, produced this one. And the background Thanks, there man. is you've followed the story of, of two German seaplane uh, pilots who have crashed in the Kimberleys in uh, 1932, and then survived their their way out uh, with a bit of help. And you've gone and re- recreated some of that. And we'll talk about those things. But aviation wise, how how did you end up in in Kiowas? Well, first aviation experience was a chopper ride when I was five in New Zealand, and that wasn't massively life-changing because I was only five. Uh, and then I've been in a couple of light planes then as I was getting older, and including a Cessna once that was flying from Darwin to the Tiwi Islands and had an engine failure, and uh, that wasn't a pivotal moment either really. But I was, as a teenager, skiing from Mount Kosciuszko to Canberra, and I had to walk the last half of it because it's about a 200 20-kilometre trip, but I got out of the tent in the morning on the top of Mount Tate, which is one of the highest ones in Australia, and I walked to the edge of this sort of steep drop-off to uh, take a whiz, actually, and a six-ship of squirrels from the ADF Helo School flew past about 50 feet below me and very close, and the sound and the view of that 
was like, yeah, I've got to got to do that someday because that looks so cool. Uh, and then so I also watched Top Gun when I was 13, so that really got me interested in flying planes as well. And so by the time I was yeah teenager, I'd pretty much decided, yeah, I'll, I'll be a pilot. And so I went through the usual recruiting process and took a couple of goes to get in, actually three, but I'm glad I persevered. And I'm glad that I didn't actually go straight in because it gave me a chance to go and do a whole bunch of other experiences traveling around the world, university and ski instructing and a whole bunch of things that I wouldn't have been able to do if I'd got in the first time. So where did that adventure stuff come from? What did your parents do? My dad was always into fishing and we'd go on family camping trips a lot, but I was just always keen on just camping. I'm not quite sure what it was. I mean, the Bush Tucker Man was fairly pivotal as well. I thought, yeah, I'd love to do that one day. And, and really, that that's planted the seed for wanting to make survival films because I still watch that show and I just love how it's made. So I've just always been into adventures. And once you do one and you go through a process of coming up with it, thinking that it's a bit silly, then actually going ahead and doing it and going through all the the stresses of going, oh, I never should have done this, and then you finally make it, and then the reward afterwards. It becomes a process that's um, that's addictive, really. Yeah, it's a very rewarding process. Well, you've definitely been creative with some of these. Now, I should mention, so when we are talking uh, Kiowa, we're obviously talking essentially a Bell 206, and this is the the light uh, reconnaissance helicopter the Australian Army had, very different to the uh, US Kiowa, I guess. With it's a, It's almost a stock 206, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much, yeah, the Channel 7 uh, helicopter painted green uh, with just heaps of radio, so limited power. But, uh, you know, it's probably the, the least sexy-looking chopper we've got, but it really is one of the most enjoyable ones to fly. And because it's so small and it's a bit under the radar, you don't have your operations under the microscope like some of the other aircraft, and that freedom sort of allowed me to pursue other stuff I wouldn't have been able to do if I was flying other types. So you went straight to Darwin? Yeah, straight to Darwin, and... I uh, went to East Timor pretty much straight away. did about a year there over a period of about three years. That was awesome flying. Uh, it was a good operation to be involved with. It was peacekeeping and it was an, it was effective peacekeeping. So, yeah, the, the peace was kept, the minimum level of violence, and it was a, it, we were cleared to 10 feet above highest obstacle for the whole place, and there's deep gorges and mountains up to 10,000 feet and beaches, and uh, we were stationed on the south side of the island with the Kiwis, so their rules were far more relaxed than the north side of the island where everyone had all rules and had to go everywhere with their webbing, even if they were just going to the food hall or whatever. So it was a, it was a really fantastic experience for a whole year. I didn't spend long there. Uh, we only did a very quick stint, but I remember exactly that. We drove to the local uh, supermarket and we had – I don't think we had um, – Flak vests on, but we definitely had you know pistol on, on the belt and things like that. And in there was one of the extra guys from the squadron. He was over there on uh, Pumas, basically doing the, the Ori trips. And so he said, "G'day, and we're we're catching up in the uh, in this shopping centre." And here I am in cams with a, a pistol on my belt and everything, and he's in his thongs and t-shirt and shorts. And uh, essentially, you know, six yeah, months yeah. before he was in the army, and here he's uh, flying Pumas and walking around in thongs and stuff like that in Timor, where we're kicking around in all his gear. Uh, so it's a bit yeah, surreal. yeah. It's funny you mentioned the Puma pilots because I remember um, a, a bit of a take on risk management that the we had a civilian SAR chopper working there and it might have been the Pumas and it was when NVGs weren't uh, certified by whichever authority was doing it over there. I think it was still CASA. So the, the non-flying pilot was allowed to wear goggles and so was the crewman but the pilot wasn't. So the only guy who couldn't see was the pilot and um, I thought that was a bit of a funny sort of situation to have flying around the mountains of East Timor. 
When you were back in Australia, and, and again, notes and, and some of the stuff that comes on the film, you talk about uh, Norforce. So can you just quickly describe sort of what that organisation is and, and I guess what, what sort of ops you, you were doing with those guys? Sure. So uh, as a chopper pilot stationed up there, I just found out about that this, this um, unit called Norforce existed and that they do survival instructor courses and survival training. So it's a predominantly Aboriginal unit and it started back uh, around World War II when Aboriginal people were asked to be involved in the war effort and patrol the coasts and stuff because they're, they're the experts, they're the ones who are most comfortable out in northern Australia. So when you're surveilling the coast looking for ships approaching or nowadays it's more smuggling ops and stuff like that, they were involved and that's carried on. So this um, fairly uh, small group of guys in that unit who are particularly into survival do these uh, survival instructor courses uh, once or twice a year. So I managed to get my way onto one of those, and I was very lucky that the, my helicopter bosses always allowed me the freedom to go and do stuff outside of things that, which are normal for a helicopter pilot. But it was the really good survival stuff. It was bush tucker, it was lighting fire without matches, hunting, all the things that I sort of wanted to do on the Air Force combat survival course, but it was more focused around uh, getting located after you'd had an accident. So after I'd done that course, I managed to get away and go back and instruct on week or several week courses each time to sort of improve my skills. Were you doing ops with them with the Kairos or this is purely you just got involved with them on the survival side? Yeah, I got involved with them separately. So I, whenever I went places in helicopters, I would always try and meet up with uh, North Force people and and do whatever operations and exercises with them. I'd take guys from my troop out, but it was really it wasn't sort of organised through the usual chain of command. It was just something that I was lucky to have the freedom to do when I was outside of an exercise and had managed to do all the paperwork and stuff to free myself from from normal flying ops. Yeah, because in those notes that I sent you, you know, I, I kind of made an assumption that you had done the the comserve training in Townsville and that's where you were doing the instructing because I didn't know any other helicopter pilots that had actually done the instructing so I don't know if it's just because we were sort of heavily tasked and it was pretty hard for most of the people to, to get out and do something different but you, so that was completely you had no connection there with the the Townsville yeah no, no other than doing comserve myself I had no connection with it and what I just loved about Norforce was it was all about the really sort of interesting survival stuff of how to actually survive rather than focused on how to get located and building a fire, you know, a signal fire and uh, how to survive in a life raft. I mean, that's an important thing to know. But the Norfolk survival was about if you're on a patrol and you get uh, stranded in a war for six months and no one can come and save you, you need to be able to survive. So it's, it's like long-term, it's called environmental survival as opposed to sort of aircrew survival. So, yeah, that's where all the cool stuff gets done anyway. Okay, so we'll, we'll draw some of the experiences as we go through. Now, you've had some pretty other crazy adventures out of Darwin, and I don't know how you, in the notes you said that the standby, the, the squadron was on standby to come rescue you. And I, I did, I did hear about this Timmy trip, uh, down in, in Brisbane, and, and it's sort of on the peripheral. There's some crazy Kiowa pilot in Darwin was basically going to load up a tinny full of fuel and just head west and see how far he could get. And that's kind of as much as I knew about it. So can you tell us how this got started and, and how was it a sanctioned activity? How did you, how'd you get it all done? Well, I just I looked at maps of the Kimberley as I – maps is one of my favourite things. In fact, uh, when Falcon View, one of the, the mapping programs came out, 
I looked at Iceland and that's how I ended up going to Iceland because it just looked so cool on the map. But the Kimberley was a place I always wanted to get to. So my then girlfriend and I set off from Darwin and, and did a 2,000-kilometre trip, if you look at all the side trips we did, from Darwin all the way around to Derby, which is pretty close to Broome. And it was pretty uh, pretty hardcore. We had strong winds, large seas, quite a few close calls. There were crocs all over the place, and including crocs that were doing a manoeuvre called spy hopping where – they, to, in order to try and see in the boat, they actually pop out of the water vertically to get their eyes a couple of feet above the water uh, in the murky water. I hadn't seen that before. And we had whales jumping out and breaching right next to the boat and a whole bunch of other really amazing experiences. And so that was the something that started the love of the Kimberley. And, yeah, the, the squadron actually had – the guys in the squadron had bets about where I was going to have to pull the EPIRB around the case. So they were pretty surprised when I popped out the other end but i think yeah the one you're talking about where the, the squadron was on standby that was more a trip i did with uh, hamish felton taylor so he, he uh flew uh, tigers and he's now flying Careflight out of toowoomba and he and i went over on a long weekend to an island north of darwin and we didn't know but there was a category two cyclone brewing up and we didn't listen to any radios because we didn't want to interrupt the peace and quiet and we woke up on the last day before having to go back to work and it was blowing you know, well above gale force and we tried to get back so we weren't late for work, which is a bad look when you're in the military. And the waves got steeper and steeper and larger and larger to the point where the bow would go up and the engine would go underwater and the engine stopped working. And we got it going about five times, but it kept on getting dunked and it eventually failed completely. So we ended up having to make a sail, uh, a makeshift sail and sail it luckily to an island that was downwind of us. Otherwise, we would have really, really been in trouble. What did um, you use for a sight? Uh, he's a bimini top. It's like a shade cloth that can come up over yep. the boat, and we just pulled that, that up a bit. And with the dead engine acting as a rudder, we could sort of steer ourselves about 30 degrees either side of dead downwind. But I remember in the middle of that, uh, and there was an embedded thunderstorm bearing down on us with the engine failed, looking at the front of the tinny where the life jackets are sort of shoved in that little hole in most tinnies. Yep. And I thought about maybe I could pull those life jackets out and climb in there and curl up in a ball and just try and imagine this isn't happening because it was pretty uh, pretty stressful. And we ended up setting off a mayday call um, to what we thought was a boat, but in the poor visibility it was just uh, a mangrove tree off the north end of the island and doing flares. And long story short, we, we managed to get over a reef, which was luckily at high tide so we didn't get smashed up and ended up on an island where we could fix the engine and then we limped over the rest of the day into the night onto the mainland and then hiked overnight through the storm with, a, with all the trees swaying and the cracking going on above our heads as it was blowing and we got back to where the boat ramp was and there was a guy sheltering there in a shipping container from the cyclone and he said the cops were on standby and the squadron was going to come out when the cyclone blew over but we managed to uh, cancel the alarm. But that that was one of a bit of a a pivotal moment as far as safety and risk management goes where I noticed afterwards that I hadn't actually put my life jacket on the whole time and now when I go out and do things like that, I tend to put it on first and it changes the mentality about when you use your safety equipment. Uh, you almost don't want to admit to yourself in a situation as it slowly gets worse that you've got yourself into a situation like that. So by putting it on early, it uh, helps you sort of reframe your mind and get ready for what's coming up. So two questions on that. How big was the boat? Uh, it was 4.2 metres, so we had a – I don't remember the size of the engine, but an, an open fishing boat basically that's really designed just to stay up rivers and creeks and not really go out on the open ocean. Yeah. And second one, did you make it to work on time the next day? 
We did, yeah, yes, <laughs> we did, and uh, we got a yeah, we got a couple of lectures as as you do, but um, yeah, it's just one of those things that happens. Yeah, yeah. That first trip where you went west to to um, to Derby uh, was that the same boat, like still a four meter size boat? No, it, that was uh, an even smaller boat that that I had a four meter boat, and it wouldn't have had the same problem because the engine was mounted slightly differently. So it was a very capable boat, but you still have to know the limitations. And when you get swamped, it can all turn bad pretty quick. So, um, yeah, just that reflection afterwards, uh, we sort of committed to a couple of things with my girlfriend. And after some really bad experiences, we thought, well, okay, we need to agree on what risk we're going to accept here and because the consequences are pretty large. So that that constant exposure to risk and then analysing how you've basically debriefing yourself you end up becoming coming up with tools on how to avoid them in future that don't necessarily apply to the activity that you're applying uh, or doing at the time. And I've certainly used those those same lessons, you know, throughout my adventuring uh, and piling career as well. Yeah, we'll circle back to the, how that sort of ties into the flying side. Uh, but I guess I just want to pick up a couple of these things because it's hard to chat talking about this without a map in front of people. So this was a four-metre boat, uh, I think you said, and when I basically did the fingers on Google Earth in terms of spreading the thumb and forefinger out to have a look at the distance between Darwin and Derby, it's the same distance roughly between Brisbane and Sydney uh, on the east coast of Australia or Miami to New Orleans in the US, for people in the US can picture that. And if you're in the in uh, Europe, it's distance from London to Berlin that we're talking about uh, that you covered in this boat. So it's <laughs> pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, it was a pretty crazy trip, yeah. Yeah. Did you camp on shore then? So picturing this, you're heading west yeah. from Darwin and you would have gone through pretty similar uh, – well, you would have gone through the same place that you then went back to with this next trip that you did later on with the film. So you just sort of yep, camp on yep. the beaches you went through? Yeah, we camped on – we slept on the boat twice uh, and that's certainly not without risk And um, because crocs can climb over and you, you turn your light on, you, you pop your head up from the from the bottom of the boat, which just stinks of petrol fumes because you're surrounded by 44-gallon drums and there's just sort of red eyes looking at you. Uh, but it's pretty risky when you, you go ashore as well. So due to some some weather conditions we had, uh, we uh, after spending a night on the boat and thinking that was too risky, we decided to spend a night on land and the highest point on land was lower than the highest tide mark. So we spent all night with a, with a campfire worried about crocs coming ashore as well because that was that area where the, the water's muddy and the, the crocs pop out of the water to look at you. So, yeah, it's pretty loose and uh, you're always worried when you do camp ashore that your boat's not going to be there in the morning because the tides are 13 metres in part of the Kimberley. It's like um, anchoring in a, in a river, which is uh, a, ra- a river with rapids basically and it changes direction during the night. It's really, really difficult. So when I was on the raft as well during the, the documentary, I had similar issues and that's why I ended up having to swim out to the raft at night during the day, uh, sorry, at at night and during the day, uh, which is pretty – it's a risk that I don't want to take, but then that taking that risk would then avoid risk later on when I was having to commit to seas that were larger because they, they, the wind would pick up at the end of the day. So you're always just trading one risk off against another. All right, tie back to flying now. When you're talking to people and you're currently instructing and things like that, I don't know if they actually get into the survival side of things, but what are your priorities? What do you suggest are the priorities then for people who find themselves in a, in a downed aircraft in, and we're talking, you know, not a wartime situation here. You, you land in Northern Australia or wherever you're flying and you, you have to get put down due to aircraft US. How do you go about or what, what should the people's priorities be? 
Yeah, I don't stick to priorities like the combat survival priorities, the protection, location, water, food. I find the situations are always so different that it's not it's best not to stick rigidly to a checklist. It'd be like having one checklist that you used for, you know, aircraft checklist, one for fire and one for hydraulics. You know, they're different situations. So you shouldn't necessarily apply the same checklist. And a level of common sense helps. And as pilots, we generally have a pretty good level of common sense. I know people might laugh at that, but we do. Uh, we certainly have good situational awareness and we understand, you know, we, we know which way north is and we have generally flown over the land that we've uh, found ourselves in, although at night you can't see it. But we're used to undertaking challenges and coming out on top because you wouldn't have got your through all of your tests in your aviation career. So we have a pretty good mindset and that mindset is what helped get the aviators out of the situation in the documentary that I made. Yeah, we're pretty good there. Uh, as far as what you should take as a pilot, I've learned the lesson the hard way of being in situations. Some of them aren't necessarily survival, but I've just had to spend a night somewhere uh, with nothing. And you just think to yourself, oh man, if only I had this small item, then my life would be a lot easier. So as far as survival kit goes, a small survival kit is by far the best because you're most likely to have it with you. So I would definitely have a small EPIRB in my survival kit and you can get tiny ones now that are the size of a Tic Tac packet for 300 bucks. A spot tracker or one of those Garmin trackers is just a no-brainer as well, uh, although you have to pay a subscription fee for those. And But let's just say you don't have any of those tracking things, so it's going to be a bit of a challenge, which is going to be some fun. The other most important things to have are a knife. One of those multi-tools is fantastic because you can take off parts of the aircraft and dismantle things with it, plus do a whole bunch of stuff in the bush. A, uh, a lighter. Uh, is a great way of lighting fires. Now, you can do the Bear grills thing and buy one of those Flintstone things, but I just find them a bit of a pain to use. Uh, matches get wet and a lighter you can just even use after the gases run out, you can use the flint in it. And I can light fire a whole bunch of different ways uh, with nothing, but it takes a lot of effort. And if it's raining and the humidity's high, then the traditional methods of uh, using a stick and spindle often don't work anyway. So definitely have a lighter. Uh, have a space blanket and try and buy one of those ones that is like a bivy bag. So it's like sort of plasticky, metallic-looking material. Uh, well, it's plastic, not material, but uh, it's silver on one side and sort of fluoro orange on the other, and you can get inside it completely. So if you're in a cold, wet environment, you can turn it upside down on a slope and cl crawl in from the bottom and you'll be dry and you'll be out of the wind. So that's probably going to keep you alive. And if you're hot, you can slit it open and make a turn the silver bit upwards and it'll keep you nicely shaded. So that's a must. And I've spent you know, nights on Comserve under a small space blanket and I was amazed at how much heat it reflected back. And then the, the next time I did a survival course, I taped two of them together and that was even better. You do get a bit of condensation on the inside, but it's a lot better than having nothing at all. Have a compass. It's a good uh, idea. Have a balaclava or a beanie because you lose so much heat through your head or your neck that just having that can you, it can mean you get more sleep if it's cold and you can use it as a pillow if it's hot. Have a cloth hat and also have a mozzie net that goes over your hat. So a lot of the survival experience I've had, there's been horrendous mosquitoes. And if you don't sleep at all because you're just getting smashed by mozzies and sandflies all night, you're pretty tired, you feel very miserable. Whereas if you can actually get some sleep, then four days later, you're feeling like a whole different person and you're making much better decisions. Take a small fold-out solar panel because pretty much everyone these days gets lost with a phone 
and your phone dies very quickly, particularly when it's um, haven't got good coverage and it's trying to transmit the signal out there. So even if you've got no coverage, you can use the phone as a torch. You can record stuff on it. You can often you might have cached enough of Google Maps to be able to help you find out where you are, or you can cache maps offline, which I do before I head out bush. Um, so that's very useful to have a phone that's actually working. Uh, chuck in a few tea bags and lollies. Make sure that the lollies don't taste too good, day because otherwise you'll eat them before you actually get yourself in a survival situation. And that's why I don't put chocolate in uh, survival kits because I'll just eat it before I actually get there. I chuck in fishing gear, have a waterproof head torch, heliograph, puri tabs, and then all that stuff is actually quite small and you can stick that in an aluminium billy, uh, which isn't going to be too large, maybe the size of a, a small kettle or something like that, and that will provide you a, a way of boiling water and a saucepan and then quite importantly when you're stuck on the coast you can desalinate seawater by boiling it and then you'd have to take a tube somewhere off the aircraft um, with your multi-tool that you got and then channel that steam down into something like a plastic bag or another uh, vessel and it will condense and all the salt gets left behind so I lived like that for 10 days on one of my North Force uh, courses and uh, I used that on the documentary to show how the aviators could have survived by doing that. And if they'd done that, they would have been able to stay with their wreckage, which we all know is generally the best um, solution in any survival situation. But they couldn't because they didn't know how to get water. So, yeah, I'd bung all that stuff in there, uh, keep it small, and hopefully you've got it with you uh, when you go down. I'll digress a little bit. Did, did they, when they went looking for these guys, the two Germans, did they actually find the aircraft before they found the two they guys? Did. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they found it weeks before they found it. Found the guys, yeah. So it would have saved them a whole load of heartache if uh, if they'd been able to stay with the wreckage, yeah. All right, let's jump around a bit. So where did you end up when you finished on Kiwas? How, how far along career-wise, hours-wise were you uh, on, on helicopter? Uh, I had about uh, 2,000 on, on Kiowa and then just a, a random opportunity came up to go to the Air Force and instruct as an Army guy on uh, Air Force planes down at Pierce. So myself and another guy, uh, Overy's top bloke, uh, we went there. Uh, for six months of training and over to Pierce for a couple of years. And uh, I'd actually always been a uh, closet guy that wanted to go and fly fast jet from when I watched Top Gun when I was little. So I managed to um, convince the RAF to give me a go on fast jet. The Army actually didn't take too well to the idea, so I actually had to get out of the Army uh, to do that. So I went over and I was going to go back and fly Tiger and my plan was always to go back and fly choppers. But anyway, I uh, pursued the fast jet route. Uh, and did that for about two and a half years. I ended up getting chopped halfway through the Hornet course, then went back and flew Hawk for a bit, uh, which was a pretty cool experience. And it's just nice being, you know, able to smash along the coast at 450 knots and uh, all those things, all those beautiful things that you see in nature when you're up high. Like, you know, as chopper pilots, we're generally limited to about 10,000, maybe 14,000. But to be able to um, get around up high is, is a different experience, uh, particularly when you can get up sort of 45, 50,000 feet. And that opened another door to go and fly the 737 for a couple of years, which I did uh, Wedgetail. And then after that, I uh, headed overseas where I actually am now. And uh, as I mentioned, I don't want to be too specific about where I am just for security reasons, but I'm somewhere sandy and doing a similar job to what I was doing in the Air Force when I was instructing on the PC-9. So it's it's quite an interesting place over here. I'll, I'll probably chat about it a bit more when uh, when I'm back in Australia at the yeah. end of the year when I move back. But it's a pretty amazing place. It's hot and sandy, and I've I, I own two camels over here, and I've done uh, trips in the desert with them in sort of survival type expeditions, living like a Bedouin, and that's been pretty nuts as well. So it's been a pretty cool experience over here. So what does uh, a camel set you back these days? 
uh, in Australian dollars, I spent about four and a half thousand on a mother and a baby. And I wanted a baby because I wanted to survive like a Bedouin, and Bedouins survive from on camel milk and dates. So the we headed out, and I was literally <laughs> living off of sharing the milk uh, with the baby from the mother camel and, and eating dates. And it's a pretty hard existence, and uh, it's a pretty stressful one too. But it's, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, and I've still got them. I see them uh, every week on the way home from work. Yeah. What was your reception when you turned up in? Uh- uh, was it Perth you went to or Sale? Where'd you end up for, for the training with the RAF? With the RAF? Well, I went to East Sale to Central Flying School for six months. We got a bit of extra training at the start because we'd only done a, a shorter course on fixed wing. Yep. So a bit of a conversion and then uh, instructing after that. So when we got to Pierce, it was fairly full on first six months to not only get used to operating in that airspace and stuff uh, and but also instruct at the same time. But it's really nice being able to look at how both services run and uh, Air Force is uh, a good service uh, as well. So it's um, it's not often that you get to a chance to do both these days because it's either choppers or, or aeroplanes depending on which service you go to. And do you still get to dabble in the helicopter side now? Uh, when I was flying Wedgetail, I, uh, so that was a 737, I was flying 44, Robo 44s on the weekend and Jet Ranger as well. Uh, just doing sightseeing ops just because I missed, I missed helicopters and I wanted to keep my hand in for when I eventually came back. But I don't have any twin time, which is pretty limiting when you want to go and fly rescue. So that's the next box I would have to tick uh, when I come back to uh, choppers. But at the moment, I'm planning on pursuing filmmaking full time. And I'm hoping that that will open up avenues for me able to fly, whether I either hire or buy aircraft and uh, and do adventures from those. So that'll be a totally different experience, being able to own your own aircraft and decide where you want to go and when and not have to you know always worry about the, uh, the requirements of whatever your employer uh, wants you to do with the aircraft. Awesome, Mike. Well, let's, let's jump into the, the background of this German seaplane pilots. And I was actually I was chatting at work before I left this afternoon in the airfield, and uh, one of my co-workers there, she used to fly up in uh, Kananara and uh, was up there for many years. And so she'd actually heard of the story as well. So it's obviously something fairly well-known in that top-end part of Australia. Uh, so yeah. How did yeah. you first hear about these guys? Yeah, so when I was, I must have been nine, it was on TV, the ABC made a doco about it and I saw my parents watching it and I asked, you know, what's that about? And they, and they told me and I thought, oh, that'd be cool to be in that situation. And so when I wanted to come up with a plan for my first film and I wanted to do something historical and put myself in the same situation, that was always sort of the number one choice. I looked at some other things that happened in the Kimberley, like Kingsford Smith when he got lost. Uh, there's quite a few interesting survival stories there, but this one was a no-brainer, and I knew that that part of the coast is really beautiful as well, and uh, it, that this film would also involve being on the ocean and then being on land, which for a viewer is is um, interesting to be able to see different environments. So I looked. Uh, I've read the book that the pilot wrote. So his name's uh, Hans Bertram, and he flew with his uh, mechanic Adolf Klausmann, and they were basically flying from Germany to. China via Australia and they were promoting this aircraft that they were flying, a Junkers Whiskey 33 seaplane. It's probably the size of a King Air with with two floats on it basically. And they were doing multi-hops and this hop they were going from Kupang in Indonesia, which is you know not far from East Timor really, so I'm familiar with that area, from there to Darwin and it's probably about 350, 400 nautical miles. And at the last minute they decided to do it at night and it was actually a journalist who came up with the idea like, hey, It'll make a really awesome story for me if you guys could do this at night. And they sort of thought, oh, yeah, good idea. So they filled up with fuel and left at midnight. 
and the book says I think they were on a on a bearing of or heading one zero zero, and they were allowing for a crosswind from the right. And we all know that we had these strong southeasterly trade winds at that time of the year, and that would be the direction I would guess the wind to be coming from as well. But because they're flying at night, I don't think they were able to assess the fact that the wind wasn't coming from where it was coming from. In their book, they talk about flying into a storm, and he, th- he thought that's what blew it off track. But just my my theory is that the wind was probably just coming from the east, uh, and so they probably aimed about 10 to 15 degrees right, and the wind pushed them 10 to 15 degrees to the right. It might have been, had a bit of northeast in it, and that's how they ended up about 30 degrees off track. So in the morning when they woke up, they couldn't see any land, and they flew a bit further on, and then they saw land way to the south, and they turned and ended up down there. And when they landed on the coast, they looked at the map and the only place that made sense to them was a was an island north of Darwin called Melville Island and they had just they assumed that they must have been up there, which is about 400 miles away. So they're way off in their minds where they thought they were. So they hatched a plan to, well, they had a little bit of fuel. They had about 20 litres of fuel left. So they headed off in the direction of where they thought civilization would be if they were on Melville Island and then they ended up running out of fuel um, right down on vapors and landing in a small elongated bay, which is now called Seaplane Bay after these two aviators. And to cut a long story short, basically over the period of about six weeks, they tried walking out along the coast and uh, they ended up getting bounced by crocodiles as they try and swam across uh, one of the many rivers up there. And they lost all their equipment because they'd stripped off nude and had all their stuff wrapped up in a in a um, one their clothing above their heads. So now they're absolutely nude in the middle of the bush and they spent five days trying to circle back around to their uh, plane and they got smashed by mozzies and all that stuff. And then they thought, okay, they drank all the water out of the radiator, which to start with tasted terrible, but by the end of it they thought it tasted fantastic. But they couldn't find any water where the plane was. I managed to find water nearby just by knowing how you can find it up there, but they couldn't. And these guys had never been to Australia before, so I certainly don't want to just poke fun at what they did. Like, I think they did an excellent job with what they knew, but they were they had to move from the plane because they just had no water. So they thought that they removed one of the floats off the plane and made a sail. They tried to sail around to where they thought they could get out, and they got dragged out to sea by a southerly and spent five days just scrambling trying to get back to shore, and they finally got back almost dead again. Uh, and then tried to walk out overland. And this time they got high enough to look on the map where they thought they were. And they, instead of seeing an ocean and a town, which they expected, they just saw nothing but, you know, dry Kimberley sandstone stretching out as far as the eye could see. And then they realised, oh, no, we must actually be down here in the Kimberley. So then they changed plan again, came back to the coast. Tried. They had to cut their raft in half because it had been smashed up because it had broken off anchor while they were gone. And they almost died again doing that. Uh, so they ended up just giving up in a cave out overlooking the ocean and they thought, you know, after another week or two that we're going to die and he pretty much thought that he would be dead the next morning and when he woke up, he saw an Aboriginal guy spearing a fish out the front of the cave and they were basically found then uh, and these, these Aboriginal people had been part of a rescue uh, search party and they nursed them back to life and they were so, so, you know, almost dead that they had to chew the meat for them and put it in their mouths to keep them alive. But they eventually got out, but it was pretty harrowing and the, the mechanic, Adolf Klausman, went permanently crazy and went, ended up in a mental institution and then ended up dying an early death, whereas the pilot managed to come back a few months later with a spare dodgy float and he flew it out and then he just kept flying around the world and then he, I think he crashed it and totaled the plane on a landing or a takeoff somewhere in, in Asia. But, um, yeah, pr- pretty amazing story. So 
my plan was to get into that same bay with a seaplane. You know, obviously I can't afford a seaplane, so I just welded up 44-gallon drums in the nearest town, which is about 200 kilometres away, uh, put an outboard engine on the back and had a very harrowing time getting in to that place with just enough fuel to get me there. Uh, I had about, I don't know, probably uh, 50 litres spare when I got there, which would be enough at the end of the expedition to just get me around a little bit back to a, a small town, but it wasn't enough fuel to get me out of there. I had to I had to sail out of there. So basically I was committed. I was 100% committed once I was in there, and my plan was to see if I could survive my way out. So uh, that involved, uh, first of all, finding water, uh, and I found it probably only 30 minutes from where this beach was, and that was by just following a water course up. And I think they had a bit of a European assumption about water, whereas if, if, a, if a river doesn't have water in it, it it's probably never going to have water in it. But in northern Australia, you can usually hike up a river and on a deep bend, in a shady bend, you know, underneath rocks, you can find water. And, and I found water that I'm pretty sure would have been there even after a poor dry season on, on any year. They also, I also showed how I could locate myself by using a particular star called Mintaka. So if you know Orion's belt, which most pilots know a little bit about stars, the westernmost star of that has a declination of zero. So it orbits or it appears to circle the Earth over the equator. So when it's at its highest point in the sky, which is called zenith, if you measure the angle from vertical to this star, that angle equals your latitude. So I did that using string and uh, an improvised protractor. Yeah, and, and you show that with four- yeah, you show that with graphics there in the film. Where did you come across that one? Because I'd, I'd never ever heard or seen that one before. Uh, I actually came up with that technique in my head after there's another technique that I've read out of a survival book where you measure the angle at which the star sets and that was going to be the way that I did it. But at that time of year, uh, sorry, no, what am I talking about? Um, the other one is uh, there's two ways of doing it. One is when it's at zenith and then you measure the angle. The other one is when it sets. Um, so the one I used in the film was actually one that I made up myself. But after making it up, I went and fact-checked it a million different ways uh, and actually did it and it, and it works. So it, in, in the big scheme of things, it's just basic, basic geometry. You're just measuring a different part of, of the angle of, of the orbit of the star. So, uh, yeah, you can, you can see it in the doco and, and figure it out if you just pause it, uh, how to do it. Uh, so where you, knowing the latitude, if you just draw a line and where that intersects the coast, that effectively gives you your longitude because there's only one place in Australia in that whole region where the angle of the coast matches the longitude. So they could have figured out where they were using that method. You know, not everybody knows that kind of stuff. And like I said, I wasn't trying to poke fun at these guys. I just wanted to see if I could figure out ways of doing it myself as a personal challenge. So, right, well, before, yeah, I spent a week. I was going to say, before yeah. we get into the rest of it, let's talk about some of the prep stuff and you tie a couple of things back in. So one was like some human factors lessons for, from their point of view, but then also we mentioned risk management there before. Yeah, can you talk us through how you manage your risk? Because there's a whole heap of things there where you're in the middle of nowhere and literally you know, you're talking hundreds of kilometres to the next person and you have no food, no water in terms of what you've got with you. So, yeah, talk us through how you, how you sort of exactly that. How, how did you manage that sort of risk level? Yeah, so I spent I spent a lot of time worrying about it, basically, and you know I lose many nights sleep really over it for for even years before that expedition and other expeditions. In fact, at the moment I'm losing sleep about my next expedition, uh, and it's not necessarily bad to lose sleep, and it's not bad to be driving to work thinking about how to manage risk because that's when you come up with mitigations or you come up with a decision that this risk isn't worth it because you've got to look at the other side of the risk. What am I what am I going to lose if this doesn't go well? So it 
it, your head just has to look at a whole bunch of different variables and then you'll come up with something. And I, I often visualize, okay, I'm, I'm on the raft and, uh, you know, what might happen? Oh, this might happen. Okay, what will I do then? Okay, well, I will need this. How will I get access to that piece of equipment? Well, if that's stuck in a bag, that's going to be too difficult to get out. So therefore, I need to have that that thing accessible. And then because I'm making a film and then I think afterwards, well, okay, how am I going to place a camera so I can handle any situation that I don't even know what the situation is going to be. So that'll depend on how I mount my cameras, how I've got the batteries set up. So I ended up coming up with SOPs effectively for situations that were unplanned. And usually the first one was turn the camera on and then start dealing with the situation. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But it was it's basically through visualization and linking that back to the experiences that I've had before, like on that expedition, you know, with Hamish in the cyclone or the other one around the coast. Uh, you start to understand about the what can happen and how quickly it can happen when the wind comes up and if you do get smashed up. Uh, and one of the main mitigations was engine problem. And though I bought a brand new engine for this expedition and just it was just unlucky, but it it had some problem. I think in the carburetor, so the engine kept dying on me and that exposed me to a much greater level of risk and I had to constantly troubleshoot that every night for for about four or five days and I'm, I'm still not happy about the level of risk because there were times there where I was, uh, my entire safety relied on this poorly performing, performing engine and I had 25 knots of wind blowing me up against a, a 300-foot cliff with the waves smashing against it and there was nowhere safe for 10, 20 kilometres in either direction and... Uh, yeah, it's just a level of risk that I didn't want to have to accept and I thought I'd mitigated by buying a brand new engine. So, you know, regardless of how much planning you do, you're always <laughs> going to end up finding yourself in a few situations that you wish you hadn't, you know, put yourself in and that was one of them. What was your actual um, yeah, so risk? I was going to say, what was your actual rescue plan? So say you got halfway through the trip and obviously, you know, you make it through and everything, but if you got halfway through and you had a, a GPS ping type thing set up so your family and friends knew where you were, yeah. But yeah, what, so, what was the yeah, signal had, for them to go and activate a, a rescue for you? Yeah, well, there was there was two concepts there. Well, first of all, the safety. So an EPIRB I had for just, all right, this is really needs to happen. I'm just going to pull an EPIRB. And obviously I'm very conscious about not wasting, you know, the efforts of the authorities or other people's lives to come and look for me. So that's obviously the number or the, the highest level of, um, you know, location that I would pull. If I thought, you know, if I got bitten by a snake and it was only not a bad one and I didn't need to pull the EPIRB or I twisted my ankle or broke it, then uh, I also had a thing called a spot tracker. And the good thing about the spot tracker is I would set it off each day twice a day and that way if if I got eaten by a crocodile and no one ever heard from me again and I wasn't able to touch a beacon, including an EPIRB, the, the, the search area would be narrowed down to probably about 10 kilometres and they'd find the raft or something. And I always had that attached to me whenever I was on the raft. So, you know, at least they'd find, find my body or something. Um, and so if it was something more minor, this this little spot tracker thing has the ability to send out a um, a separate pre-coded message, which basically was I need I need an extraction type thing. And so sure. I'd, there was a helicopter company, Heli Spirit up there, and I'd said if this happens, then, um, you know, I'll, I'll try and ensure that there's an area somewhere and you can come and pick me up. And that would just, I just did, I wanted to avoid the authorities having to take responsibility for me if something moderate happened, you know. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, awesome. Uh, all right, in terms of, uh, well, I interrupted you there, so if, if you got anything more about the, the risk management side of things of, of the pre-planning for it. 
Uh, oh, it'll probably yeah pop up as we go through. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah there's plenty of risks to manage. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I ended up – so I'm basically now in the bay uh, and uh, I've, I've found myself, I've got my water and I'm eating food. So the most common food that I ate was shellfish and there's – middens which are these uh, piles of shells that aboriginal people have been throwing up on the beach for tens of thousands of years and that pretty much tells you exactly what the best food to eat is in the area so i went out and found those cockle shells and also some other shells called the window pane shell and they're about the size of the palm of your hand and they taste just as good as any uh, restaurant uh, shellfish it was really really nice Uh, but i also ate a lot of other plant food like Boab nut, I made boab porridge. I had green ant tea where you boil the green ant nest and drink the tea that comes out. It's quite nice. Uh, bush cucumbers, a whole, a whole range of different plants. And anyway, that, that sustained me quite well for the week whilst I made my own raft. So I decided rather than making a raft out of one float that I would use two floats because that's much more stable and I could make a catamaran. So they made a sail out of two bathrobes that they sewed together so I did the same thing and I, I was sitting on the exact same part of the beach as these guys were all those years ago sewing up a sail out of bathrobes and uh, made the made the raft and ended up putting to sea and it worked which was uh, quite a quite an amazing feeling when it when it just got going the fact that it actually worked was really amazing because I live in a very sandy place and there's no way for me to test any of these things so for it to actually work um, you know almost brought a tear to my eye and I hit the ocean and basically sailed along the coast for about four days coming ashore each night. I visited the cave where they almost died. I got bounced by the Coast Guard who uh, probably thought I looked like a, an illegal boat arrival from Indonesia. I came across a luxury cruise boat who was quite surprised to see me, but their chopper pilot actually came over because he'd heard about it on ABC News because ABC had been covering the whole story uh, or, or my story. And uh, he came over and is offering me orange juice and stuff. He's like, oh, mate, yay, what can I give you? And I'm like, oh. And that gives <laughs> me the film. He sounded, he sounded so sincere and, he's, and then the confusion in his face and his voice and when you're saying no. And, I, yeah, and, yeah. and for you, like by this time, you know, well, you're about two weeks into it and you're starving pretty much. And uh, yeah. it's funny, you're saying, oh, I can't even look at it. Yeah, yeah, because if I looked at it, I – I know I would have been able to taste in my mouth what it tasted like and oh, I didn't want yeah. to give in to it. You know, the last thing I want is to do something and then and then some guy goes, oh, yeah, that guy reckons he survived, but I actually gave him some orange juice, you know, like. Yeah. So, and I, I just within myself, I wanted to keep it all legit. But it was very kind of him and that's just typical of remote areas. People are always kind and generous. And uh, there's also the chopper pilot thing. So we, we had a chat about, you know, we knew different guys who all flew choppers and stuff. So uh, it was a bit of a, bit of a funny little segue into uh, – yeah, different things, but but people. I actually showed the film in, in in cinemas in Australia and did talks, and people said, "Oh, it looked like you're a little bit annoyed to see that guy." And <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't just about the food. It was because I had about uh, I don't know half an hour of of light left, and I had to sail and still set the raft up and stuff. And I ended up having the the anchor rope breaking that night on the raft. So I'm, you can never relax when you're in one of these situations. So. Yeah, that's why I was a little bit tense and just wanting to keep moving because I had to put the raft to bed, basically. Uh, anyway, so we kept on going along the coast, and I ended up ro- roping the raft up in a in a deep, beautiful bay, and then walking overland to Pago Mission. So the they were aware of Pago Mission, which was the nearest civilization to them back in 1932, and that was my out point, basically. So then I walked 
overland for sort of three or four days and I had to cross the Drysdale River, which is I was, I was I was I spent a lot of sleepless nights in the, a year or two before that trip thinking about how I would get across there because I had no way of assessing whether I'd have to swim and would I swim? Do I? You know, it's just too much risk to swim across a river like that in in northern Australia. And luckily, I found. So, a do you want to just to explain jump. explain why the risk is there? Well, it's. I mean, there's big saltwater crocodiles, and I mean, I'd already seen big crocs. Like uh, one of them was as long as a raft. I reckon it was at least a five meter croc. Because when crocs get old, they they end up the scales get elongated and they grow big lumps on their heads. And I knew there was big crocs around, and I saw big crocs on this river, and I had to uh, I had to get across it. So, it, I mean, in, in the end, it was a limited exposure. It was only. A short gap, which I managed to jump across, but then let go of the rope that was tied to my gears. I had to swim back and get my gear anyway. But I didn't know what it was going to be like, for, and I was worried that maybe the river was going to be like 10, 20 meters wide. And there, I, I would not swim across a river like that up there, which meant I would have had to follow it for you know 50 k's possibly in the wrong direction before I could find a crossing point. So, yeah, there's just these, there's just unknowns that you can't actually manage until you're live there in the moment. So that was that was one of those risks. But I eventually made it out to Pago Mission, which is now abandoned, and then I had to keep walking. And then I was walking at night because I was so hungry and I was just so tired as well. And there was another – I came across a river at night and um, I used my torch then because I wasn't using my torch up until then, but I've, I'd considered myself rescued. So I turned my head torch on and I could see red eyes shining back at me, so I decided not to try and cross that one at night and got across it the next day. Uh, and made it out to civilization, well, onto a track at least that I could hitchhike, and I hitchhiked into Kalumbaru. And my plan was to, which is a little Aboriginal community, uh, and that's the same place where the rescue was launched from all those years ago in the 1930s. And while I was there, I interviewed uh, an Aboriginal guy called Matthew Weiner, who is a relative of the aviators rescuers, and you know his story still matches the the rescue stories from all those years ago. I did basically then turned around straight away that same that same night to get back to the raft because I heard of a guy that was going that way in a tinny and so I got a, a tinny ride and then caught up with another guy who was flying an R44 up there for researchers on Aboriginal paintings and yeah he gave me a lift out um, to back to the raft which saved me another four-day trip of walking and then I had to motor it around the coast and uh, and the window the, sorry the Columbarine Museum is now got the the raft in it and did you say that you you went to school there or your dad went to school or taught at columbaru school yeah it's, it's just one of those really weird connections so my, yeah my dad uh yeah went up there and he was teaching at the at the mission school up there for a couple of years um and so yeah it's just one of those really weird sort of connections there yeah so it's a great it, place yeah. yeah so he he'd been a pago mission and yeah driven up and seen the ruins and all sorts of stuff and uh, there's a story about uh, I think I think it connected with these German guys again, where Hitler sent out a uh, some really fantastic piano as a as a thank you to the local community, and there was this yeah, grand grand piano sent out from Germany as a as a, a thanks to the locals. Yeah, yeah, and I actually looked for that there, and we couldn't find it. And then uh, I think it's actually down in, um, at a church near Perth in Northern or something like that. But yeah, I tried to track that piano down. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of memorabilia still from those guys floating about. Yeah, but they, what I really liked about those two aviators is that they're, they're always respectful uh, and thankful towards the Aboriginal people. Uh, and at that time up there, they were tri- being treated very poorly. Uh, as I mentioned in the film, they had assumed that Aboriginal people had murdered the aviators, so they chained up nine of them, you know, chains around their necks, and they're going around with the search party as uh, as they're searching and stuff. So, yeah, it, I, I'm, one of the things about the film that I'm keen to do is just 
highlight the the generosity that Aboriginal people have. They've always been so accommodating when I've wanted to do trips, and uh, I just like the way they're so connected to the landscape and and they look after it. You know, when they're put in charge of country, I think they're most likely to not bend in the face of development pressures. So. Uh, yeah, I'm very thankful to the Balangara Aboriginal people. And in fact, after the after I did the I made the film, it took a year to put it together. Uh, I toured around the Kimberley and showed it back at Columbaroo and Wyndham and all these places. Just hide out um, like outdoor theatres and just showed it to them for free. And then when I was in Darwin and Broome, I took tickets sales at the door to sell out audiences actually, and just to save about sort of eight and a half thousand dollars, which has gone into a bronze plaque, and that's going to get mounted up on the hill that overlooks Wyndham and it's just going to tell the story of the Aboriginal rescuers and the aviators and point people in the direction of the museum um, so they can go learn a bit more about about the area and, and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's all it's sort of it's all come around in full circle now. The, the expedition, I mean, happened two years ago. All these things take time and it's only just going up on the hill as we speak, that, uh, that plaque. Yeah, I think you cover that really, really well in the film. That sort of, you know, some of those areas you went to talk about in the film that, you know, these spectacular little waterholes on the, with cliff faces and that, and that uh, they're sort of off the off the map for for a reason. And you, you sort of cover the, you know, the local people in the history and and yeah, the treatment they got. So I won't, you know, I'll try and talk people into go watching the film. But uh, yeah, you do a really, really good job of that. Uh, if yeah, we, thanks. yeah, let's let's jump into the filming then because. Watching it, one, it's just spectacular countryside with drone shots and, and panning and, and you know, it's not up there with, like, Planet Earth 2 from David Attenborough, but it's it's not too many pegs down. Like, it's really, really well filmed. It looks beautiful. Um, but the thing that you, the whole time you're watching it, you're realising that you're there by yourself. There's no one else taking the pictures and it's just you and a couple of drones and cameras and things. And I think that's what makes the film, like, just really – Engaging and just amazing and watching it because the whole time watching you do all this sort of stuff and talk and jump rivers and that is that idea in the background that there's no one else there watching you other than you and the cameras. Yeah, and that was the idea because uh, whenever you see someone t- talking about survival like on, on the TV, you know that they've got a crew. So that, that was the whole point. And I did want people to always have that thought, oh, this guy's out there by himself, you know, this is sort of more real. Now, it's not realistic that I have to film myself because, honestly, it takes as much effort filming as it does surviving, and those two tasks are massive. But um, I think that's more realistic than having a crew there. So certainly things like drones made it so much easier, like that river crossing. That was one of my SOPs um, that I'd thought about, you know, three months before. Okay, if this happens, how am I going to get the shot? Like how am I going to get – because normally if I have a shot of me walking past the camera – I have to either put the camera down and then walk backwards and then walk past it or, or do the opposite. But if I'm swimming across this river, I'm certainly not going to commit myself to that risk twice. So then I thought, okay, well, I'll just use the drone and that way I can land the drone without on the on my side of the bank after I've jumped over. So in my hand, as I jump across there, you'll see a drone controller. Uh, I'm just, you know, lucky that I didn't drop it because it would have ended up going back and landing on the other bank and I would have had to go over and get it. But yeah, there is so many advances in technology that make it easier but they're very, very difficult to manage, particularly, you know, those drone shots when I'm on the raft, I'm trying to steer this pretty dodgy raft, with, you know, with my left foot and it's difficult to steer just with your hands as it is, but then I'm trying to steer it, look through the, a viewfinder with a sunlight coming off it um, of what the drone's looking at and make sure it doesn't back into that massive cliff over there and monitor, you know, are those waves going to take me into this cliff whilst I'm flying the drone and then landing the drone with the raft going up and down. And so I always had my aviator goggles and hat on 
to try and catch when I caught the raft because you can get horrendous injuries from catching drones and there's plenty of injuries. And then you have to be able to, I mean, sometimes the the sensors on the drone wouldn't allow me to catch it because it would think I was an obstacle and it would fly away. And then whilst, you know, steering the raft with one foot, I've got to dive deep down into the settings. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like flying a plane that has an autopilot. You've got to dig down to the FMC and try and find the approach plate and the initial approach fix whilst you're trying to attitude fly a difficult instrument approach. That kind of multitasking as a pilot uh, was very useful um, and the ability to prioritise and go, okay, maybe now's the time to risk the drone and look after my safety or maybe now I can actually start worrying a bit more about the shot and worry a bit less about the safety. So, yeah, that prioritisation that you have as a pilot and the ability to work under pressure and stay focused. And focus is a word that I never used to understand really, but I I used to find myself as a pilot uh, and even as a learner driver doing a driving test, um, focusing incorrectly on how your performance is going rather than how you're actually performing the task at hand. So, you know, when I was instructing at, uh, at Pierce, for example, there'd be a guy that would fail a mission because he didn't level off in the holding pattern when he's flying an approach. And when you really dig down into it, why did you descend through that height? It's because he'd made a mistake on the departure and he was worrying in his head about whether he was going to pass the ride from the departure. So he'd basically not focusing on the task at hand. So during those times when I'm you know, hanging on for dear life in these difficult situations, I need to make sure that my brain is focused on the most important task at hand. Sometimes that's safety, sometimes it's filming, and I switch rapidly between the two, but I'm fairly confident that I'm focusing correctly on the right thing and I'm not worrying about other stuff. So in survival situations, often people do focus on the wrong thing. They worry about, oh, what's my family going to think? I mean, it's fine to think those things when the emergency is over, but in the middle of something going badly, you need to be concentrating on absolutely everything about around you you need all your senses to be sensing what's going on visually you know audibly uh everything so you can pick up on cues which might save your life or present an opportunity to get yourself out of the situation that you're in so yeah piloting skills and adventuring skills go go together quite well and i I needed every single one of them and if i did the trip again uh, um you know i don't know if i'd end up making it out the other side with with a film to show and that almost the filming stopped halfway through because i damaged the camera and whilst I'd, you know, risk managed broken equipment, I didn't really fork out the money for a second uh, primary camera, and the camera basically went to the red screen of death with all of the um, the little squiggly lines across it. And I just swore my head off at the top of my lungs for about two hours out in the middle of the bush because that was going to be it. You know, I could have kept going with a GoPro, but that wouldn't have been enough. You know, the limitations of using a GoPro with the audio and all that kind of stuff. And I ended up getting it working in a sort of slightly uh, redundant lower grade mode so it was now shooting in 1080 rather than 4k so i've now got a, a 1080 production rather than the 4k production that i was hoping for but luckily uh, 1080 is still pretty much the main media standard these days but anyway uh it is a pretty it's a difficult situation and, and your piloting skills do set you up very well for it did you have a backup and, drone or you just had the one drone no i had three drones and okay. i expected i expected to lose probably two that's why i took three and one was an old an older, clunkier one, which just sort of stopped working. It was just too glitchy, basically. But I had these two DJI drones, and I crashed one once, uh, and that was it was it was an error on my behalf. I was uh, I always flew them line of sight, but I was backing up towards a hill, and I could just see this really nice sunset shot developing 
on the screen and I knew that there was a hill close and I'm like, I reckon I can push this for another two seconds, bang, <laughs> straight into a tree. So uh, I ran up the hill and ended up finding it, replacing the blades, and it worked really well. And I'm amazed. That, that, I mean, I've flown – I mean, right now I'm flying a brand-new state-of-the-art military aircraft and I'm, I'm amazed at the technology in um, in these DJI drones and I'm not, not sponsored by the company or anything, but the reliability, sophistication and – fairly intuitive nature that you can fly them without reading an instruction manual uh, is, is just amazing. So I can I can launch the drone at any range from me, probably from one foot to maybe 100 metres, and I can visually track myself uh, looking at the screen on the mobile phone and I draw a box around myself and it will just notice me visually and, and track me really quite accurately. Sometimes when the contrast, you know, when my shirt got too dirty and it looked like the same colour as the rocks, it would drop lock and things like that. But it's um yeah it, it's a really amazing system that that they've created and it just pulls out so many opportunities and the the helicopter flying experience I've got really transfers well into drones so any pilot that uh, is thinking about getting into drones you're already three quarters of the way there because you understand airspace navigation uh, mission planning you understand how the wind and the weather works and if your drone's flying at this speed how long it can fly into a headwind of this speed you know for example and then it just comes down to training your fingers into uh, being good at it and because we've all flown helicopters and we've gone from not being able to hover to the experienced pilots that we are now we we can see that whole spectrum and we know quickly that you can i mean you can hover a chopper pretty quickly after only a few lessons it's the same thing with the drone but i I guess i'm probably equivalent of someone with about i don't know i'm equivalent as a pilot with my drone flying skills at about a thousand hour pilot now Uh, i've still got a lot more experience to get but if i hadn't flown helicopters that that whole process would have been a lot uh, a lot slower yeah you cover in the film with you know you're carrying solar panels to charge all the stuff up and how heavy the gear is and you're actually carrying all this camera equipment everywhere with you on on, as you do the walkout and that but sticking with the the drones for a moment when you're when you're now flying, and obviously you're flying fixed wing at the moment, and it gets pretty low levels, and when you jump back into helicopters, have you thought about how you actually change how you fly now that you know more about drones? Um, uh, sorry, the, for for safety aspects of drones, or yeah, in terms of if you're if you're in the aeroplane, do you not fly as low as you used to near built up areas, or how do you adjust oh, things? That's a good question. Um, if I was in a sh- I probably wouldn't actually. No, I wouldn't adjust how I how I fly things. So uh, I don't think I, I think the risk of a drone strike from a from a sub two kilo drone it would be quite similar to a bird strike. There is a slightly uh, added risk of a fire from a drone uh, lipo battery, but I don't think the impact is really going to be any different to a bird. And I've hit I don't know probably fifteen to twenty birds. How many birds do you reckon you've hit in in your career flying choppers? Honestly, I reckon only probably three. Three? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but again, you guys are Kiowa guys doing pretty more low-level stuff than I've ever done. But, uh, yeah, no, I've had a pretty good run. I think I've hit a bat as well in there. Yeah, yeah I, had a, yeah, I had a fruit bat on goggles once right through the main rotor and it splattered blood all over the um, the canopy and it, there was bones and stuff in the intakes for, like, the avionics cooling bay and stuff. Now, I think if that had been a, a drone, the same drone that I fly now, the result would have been the same and – um, I would have done a precautionary landing. It probably would have been a, a maintenance inspection, maybe a replacement if it was a drone. So there's a there's a monetary expense, but I don't think the safety risk is that high. So there was a drone. There's only two drone pictures I've seen of of aircraft hitting drones. 
and one was a black orc and there was a slight dent near the door and another one I'm pretty sure it looked like a squirrel and it had hit somewhere down near the tail rotor. There was a small dent on the tail boom. It pro- had probably hit the tail rotor and they were obviously taking the picture to show as much damage as they could, but I couldn't see any damage on the tail rotor. And if you look at the, the leading edge or a cross-section of a main rotor blade or a tail rotor blade, it's a pretty solid piece of metal. And if you just walked up to a drone with a blade in your hand and you smacked it like a baseball bat with a tail rotor blade, it would just go straight through the drone. So I don't think the risk is... It wouldn't personally worry me as far as my personal safety goes. If I was flying a drone around, uh, flying a chopper around, even a, even a small one, and I hit one, uh, I wouldn't want it. I, I think there should be rules in place, but I don't see the risk being that much different to birds, and we don't really limit our operations too much because of birds. And there is a lot of historical risk management data on birds, so I think if um, if the authorities could test the, the and find a very a close similarity between the two, then um, they could just use the data that we already have on birds. And if you have you got the flight flight radar app on your phone, you know that one where it shows uh, all the transponders. Yeah, like flight radar twenty four or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look on that and you look at how many uh, aircraft are flying around the world right now, there's just they're covered. Like you look at a country like America, and you can barely see the map of the country underneath the, the symbols of the aircraft. And you know they're not no one's hitting drones, so I don't think the uh, the likelihood is high. And I don't think the consequence is particularly high. And if you put that into a risk management chart, it'll come out as a, as a low risk. So, but I just think there's a little bit too much emotion around it. Yeah. Cool. No, I just want to get your opinion. What about the um, for you know we're hearing the US airlines especially uh, picking up uh, experienced rotary pilots and, and putting them in and, uh, and and going that way. What's your opinion in terms of the yeah, jumping from rotary into fixed wing? Yeah. So h- having done both, I think choppers is the best place to be. There's because if you're looking at the, the the later years, like the second half of your career onwards, um, because there's a lot of cool fixed wing jobs when you're out there getting paid nothing, but you're flying around the bush doing cool stuff. But I think when you're looking in guys between their you know 40s plus, my helicopter friends, uh, particularly the ones flying EMS, just love their jobs, and they they find it rewarding. Yes, there's some stresses involved when you're dealing with people who might have passed away or accidents and stuff like that, but they all just, they're all happy. And even the ones that aren't flying EMS are like, they still think it's pretty cool and they, they're enjoying it. Whereas I don't get that same level of enthusiasm from the fixed wing guys because they you know, inevitably end up in airlines and they just, uh, some, some people really like it. Uh, so I don't want to make the full generalization, but I just think that my chopper pilot friends are happier in their 40s and 50s than, than my airplane flying friends, even if there's a, a different monetary income between the two. Although I don't really think there is much of a difference from what I see. And there's a lot more to life than, than money anyway. So I'd, I'd stay where you are if, if you're thinking about coming across, but everyone's different. Um, and I, I found flying the 737. Uh, for two years, the least rewarding flying that I did. But some guys get into choppers, even army choppers, um, with a view to get hours to go to the airline. So a lot of it depends on what your passions are as a as a youngster. Uh, but uh, I certainly, I mean, I, I would be very much looking forward to getting back into helicopters when I get back to Australia. My impression of flying AWACS, and I guess that's what the wheat sale pretty much is, is that must be one of the most boring jobs out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're basically, but that is the same as um, flying airlines. So, I mean, the only difference with that is you land in the same spot at the end, um, although yeah. you do do a lot of uh, transits as well. Yeah, I just think job satisfaction-wise, yeah, helicopters are good. There's a great clip called uh, Live in the Dream. It's about it's made by an airline pilot, 
about the airline pilot career and it's it's a Lego cartoon thing. But if you just Google living the dream, it's pretty funny. And I, that sort of some that matches up with what I the impressions I get from from guys I know flying flying airlines. So yeah, choppers choppers are great. I think the 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 reward that you get from from flying around, you know, if you do an EMS for example, you're making real decisions that affect real people and. Uh, there's, there's variety. There's probably a little bit of uh, enough risk, particularly if something bad happens, like you know the Sydney to Hobart disaster many years ago. There's all there's enough risk to keep it interesting, but it's uh, but not enough risk to make it you know a job that you don't want to do if you've got a family. Um, seems like a pretty fantastic job. That if I was a young guy, I'd be I'd be going rotary and aiming for that uh, rather than aiming for fixed wing. Unless unless you love the idea of just travelling around the world and going to the same city all the time. If that's if that floats your boat, then then great. But uh, it's, I guess it's, it's all personal preference. But I know what I choose. I, the thing I sent back in the email in terms of you know what the response was in our household watching the, the film uh, here is that uh, normally if I try and get my wife and my ten year old daughter to, to sit down and watch anything that I want to watch, it's it's very very difficult because they kind of want to do their own thing. But they actually sat down and watched this whole thing all the way through, and yes, yeah, super engaging uh, on this film. As I said, that that idea in the back of your mind as you're watching it that there is no one else there and you're filming it all yourself as you're going through and these, you know, beautiful aerial shots of the the scenery in, in that part of the world. What's the easiest way for people to to find out about the the film a bit more in terms of where to go get it? Because I think I saw it on iTunes for like five bucks or something like that. And it's yeah, like yeah, for the cost of cost of coffee, it is a uh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, you can uh, you can buy it on uh, iTunes or Google Play. If you just Google, or, uh, yeah, Surviving the Outback is the name of the film. Uh, you can you buy it on those platforms, either rent or buy. Or if you Google Surviving the Outback, it'll also take you to my website where I list a few things. It gives a bit more information about the film as well. Uh, you can now buy it because I've got a full distribution deal now in the US, so it's now for sale on uh, Amazon, Blu-ray, DVD, a whole bunch of different platforms. So and kids, yeah, kids really do like it. And I found when I was showing it in theaters, uh, a lot of older people were coming up saying, "Oh, can you sign this and give it to my grandson?" Because I really want to encourage him to get into the outdoors. It's one of those things that that uh, people connect with, and yeah, kids love it. And I've shown it in my in the school here with my daughter, and she's in year four. And even no one even noticed the swear words. There's not too many swear <laughs> words. I think there's only one or two. But yeah, it's uh, it is for all ages. People enjoy it. Yeah. And uh, just while we're chatting about uh, selling stuff, I was just going to encourage people. Like I've been um, sponsoring your show on, on Patreon for a while and uh, I just encourage other people to do the same thing because if you look at the effort it takes to, to do this kind of stuff and, uh, and Mick's doing it in his own time and as a pilot, for, you know, I think Mick, you were saying about after 8 p.m. is when you start doing your other stuff and I find it exactly the same way. After 8 p.m., I've done my flying job, I've got home, I've uh, helped out with dinner and kids and now they've finally gone to bed and now I've got sort of like maybe an hour to do my uh, creative projects. Um, so if you can support Mick and just buy him the equivalent of a coffee or a beer, which he certainly deserves, um, please go ahead and do that on, on Patreon because um, it'll help him continue doing what he's been doing. And I get a lot of benefit. I, I, I listen to these when I drive to work and I get so much more benefit uh, out of listening to these. And I learn stuff I never even would have thought I'd um, I'd learn. Uh, there's so much variety on this show. So thanks for doing what you're doing, mate. I really do appreciate your show. Oh, well, thanks, mate. It's, uh, yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And unfortunately, that's why these shows have kind of dropped off recently is going from two to three days a week back to, to full time as a CFI. 
uh, yeah, uh, it's just it's uh, there's not too much free time left over at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I love doing them. It's just sort of as you say at the end of the day, and it's just uh, you just want to go and sit in front of the TV sometimes. <laughs> you do, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, sit in front of the TV. I've, yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, I've learned more than, than anything doing these things. It's uh, been a huge, huge thing for me. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I can't wait to see the rest of the yeah, videos come out. I did track one down on on YouTube, which was uh, the one through Iceland. And seeing the comparison between the, the video quality you had, like that was, you know, <laughs> pretty, pretty rough to the yeah, quality yeah, of this yeah. one. And did you film the, the, uh, the desert one? I did, yeah, yeah. Uh, it didn't quite go to plan because it was so difficult. I won't get into that story, but I'm, I'm yep. planning on describing, uh, saving that footage for something in Australia. Well, I'd like to do a camel trip in Australia. I'd like to catch a wild camel and uh, train it up and take it across a desert. And uh, yes, yeah, so I did. I did film that one in, in a big way. And um, yeah, I'm just getting set up for my next one, which I still I don't like announcing what I'm doing because all of a sudden then you give yourself an external pressure, yeah. and then you, you feel more obligated to commit to a risk that you might not be happy with when you actually get in the situation. But yeah, I'm looking at the Barrier Reef next year, something uh, even larger than the last one I did in the Kimberley. Yeah, I said to my wife, yeah, but I've got to go talk to that crazy guy tonight and uh, record the, the episode. <laughs> and she knew exactly who I was talking about. But uh, yeah, so, so outbackmike.com.au uh, is, is the website. So outbackmike.com.au. You've got to check it out. The film is, is amazing. It's beautiful. Uh, it's, you know, you sit there. I think it's about 40 minutes long. I can't remember exactly how long. Uh, 57. Is, 57. 57. But, uh, yeah, you lose yourself in it and it's a beautiful part of the country in Australia as well. So it's something, you know, very few people actually get to see that part and I've never really seen much of it before. Dude, like absolutely inspirational, mate. <laughs> like seeing you do those sorts of things has got me fired up and uh, and that's, that's that's pretty much the only way you can come away after watching it. It's like uh, it's, it's, it's really inspirational. So, yeah, dude, so well done. Thanks a lot, Mick. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I hope you found that interesting. If you want to see what Mike looks like and get a feel for the different adventures that he has tackled, on the blog post for this episode, I've posted a heap of photos and videos. There are links there to Mike's website and where you can see the, the film Surviving the Outback. That's all over at rotarywingshow.com. It has been a while between episodes. And I need to make a special mention and thanks to Doug Williams in California for capturing the audio with Pete Gillies in episodes 73 and 74. Every time that I hear uh, Pete talk and tell stories is just amazing. I can only imagine what you would pick up if you were able to work alongside someone uh, like Pete and have those kinds of stories drip fed to you over time as you're you know, walking around the hangar, doing things, having a cup of coffee, cleaning the aircraft down. Uh, just be amazing picking up all those little tips that he's uh, gathered <laughs> through experience in his career. My biggest takeaway there again from his episodes was just you know having any loose items in the cockpit during doors off operations because it only takes a second for something to, to go out, fly out sideways from the cabin, back to the turreter, and then all of a sudden you're having a, a very, very bad day. Those two episodes were put up with minimal editing or production. But I wanted to get them out uh, rather than having them sitting on a hard drive. It's just been a, a very, very busy year um, going back into full-time work and now taking over as the, the chief flying instructor at our school here in Brisbane. We've moved house. My wife has had uh, two major surgeries. 
there's been getting my head around the, the new role, uh, recruiting for additional instructors, and now World Helicopter Day is coming up again for 2019. So it's been a little bit crazy, but uh, things are starting to settle down a bit. As a quick plug, if you are an Australian and looking to get your helicopter licence, then Aeropower Flight School is now one of four schools in the country that are eligible for government loans that will cover a large part of your training costs. If you Google VET, so it's V-E-T, loans, Aeropower, you can find out more information about that. We can drop me an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. There are two training slots open right now in uh, late September 2019, and then the application and selection process for courses in 2020 will open in late August. Just be aware there are only very limited spots on those courses. World Helicopter Day 2019 is on Sunday, the 18th of August, so make sure you look up your nearest event at worldhelicopterday.com. Just quickly, the ones I've got at the moment are listed there. In Australia, we've got ones in Brisbane, Cairns, Hong Kong, in Spain, and the, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong here, I'll check the Balearic Islands. In the US, we've got Alabama, Pennsylvania, New York, California. Quite a few in the UK, so there's ones at Somerset, Chard, Manchester, Leicestershire, and Ramsgate. And again, the one in Serbia, Belgrade, is always a big one every year. So it's not too late to have your own event listed too, and have that promoted worldwide. That's it for this episode. There are a few more in the pipeline, and I'm keen to get back into a, a more regular schedule. And thanks so much for listening. <laughs>